to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Spech. Hey, hello. Derek, we're not, not here. here. <laughs> As you're listening to this, yep. I am in uh, Lake Superior, mm-hmm. or hopefully on Lake Superior, not hopefully, in Lake Superior. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're somewhere... In McGregor. McGregor. Oh, yeah, you're a McGregor. We're having a weed slam. Oh, that's right. We're having the Mega Dram. <laughs> mega Dram. The Mega Dram. Yes, 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 yes. No weed drams here. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a great week. Hopefully, we're having fun. Oh, yeah, we're having a blast. Hopefully, none of the us have been great. eaten by a bear or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I'd say what's new, but. We don't know. No, we don't. We have, no, we have clue. no clue. We have no clue on the best of days, but we <laughs> have no extra clues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about stuff then. I think my mic, I feel like I'm talking over my mic today. Mike who? Mike. My Michael stand. Uh, do you remember, I don't know how you can forget, Wisconsin, Lake Mendota. Yes. That's where they've been finding all those dugout canoes yeah. so and I stuff think, like that. I think this is in this is a third time we've discussed this. Uh yeah, because we found they found the one. The first one, then, then they, they found, found the second, second one. one. Now I met Tamara Thompson at Canucopia this past spring mm-hmm. and was talking to her about a few things and you know, I gave her my um or our little you know, say, Hey, we talked about it and we had these kind of discussions about what you might find and mm-hmm. she sort of hinted that we were on the right track with yes, stuff exactly. but that they were going to start doing a bunch of research and stuff and taking things there waiting for a couple of grants to come through yeah. they're going to start posting some stuff wow it sounds like they've been doing some the research work. is flying out it is so back in july uh there's a boatyard warehouse on Chicago's south side, Tamara Thompson, a maritime archaeologist with the Wisconsin State Historic Preservation Office, was inspecting a 15-foot-long dugout canoe made more than a century ago. Meanwhile, Cecil Schroeder, an archaeologically... Archaeology. Archaeology. Oh, there's going to be some big words in this. I tell <laughs> there's going to be. I might as well just quit now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on holidays. An archaeology professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison was capturing images for a 3D model and using tweezers to pry loose woody flakes to send to a lab which might reveal the source of the dugout's wood. I find that fascinating for the fact that you could pull a splinter of wood and determine the genus and the the type mm-hmm. and the like. You know, hey, well, this was a pine tree or this was a whatever. Well, and depending on the what the wood is, mm-hmm. they may even just figure out where it came from. Is it latitude right? and location? Yeah, yeah because yeah. like down south Wisconsin, <clears throat> they didn't grow these kind of trees, so it had to be from north Wisconsin yeah, or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dugout canoe, which was likely made from a tree that once grew in Wisconsin, is uh, one of more than five dozen located, cataloged, photographed by Schroeder and Thompson as part of the Wisconsin Dugout Canoe Survey Project. I had no idea they found that. I thought they were at three. They were at five they, dozen. She, when I talked to her, she's saying that, yeah, they had a line on a few that were privately held. Uh, oh, okay. A few that were in a couple of collections, 
there was a few that they thought they knew where, and they were following leads to find more. Wow. They knew they were out there. They just hmm. had to find them. So now five dozen, that's like more yeah. than that. That's like 60, right? That's a wealth of research. Because it's hard to find, like when you, when you talked about the, the little design bits and whatever. Like we talked about the uh, kayaks up north and uh, how, you know, in Alaska they had a certain design. And in central, like there was a certain design. Greenland, there was a certain design. Mm -hmm. And some of them crossed over because you could tell that the villages had crossed over across the Arctic. Now, with five dozen different examples to pull data from, like that, that's that's a lot of. It's going to be really interesting to see because was it all a common one certain tree? Was it was it a certain design that's common? And and they're going to find a bunch of them that are different ages. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, they got one that was a hundred years old. They got one that's like three thousand years. Yeah, old, right? holy cow! Uh, it's an effort to identify and document the origin, style, and tree species used to make dugouts. The team is also building a library of 3D interactive digital models of the dugouts, which is available to the public online. Wisconsin Canoes, uh, the researchers have found so far range in age from roughly 150 to about 4,000 years old. 4,000, that's incredible. Yeah, vessels that floated on Midwestern waterways, relics of another era and ecosystem. Hmm. Now, we talked last, last week about uh, the group that we did the Everglades yes, 125 years later and figuring out what's changed in that ecosystem down there. And same deal here, what they're going to find different things, right? Indigenous peoples of the time may have managed the forests, get trees that had characteristics they wanted and grew to the size needed for the dugouts. Identifying the species used at different points in time could indicate possible environmental shifts and provide more evidence of the forest's makeup and how people used them. All this from a boat mm-hmm. that's been sitting. It's amazing the science you can pull from a tree. Mm-hmm. These old, old trees. You don't hear too much about the native culture here before the year, first Europeans arrived. These dugout canoes, they take you back beyond that history. There's a lot to learn from it, Bill Quackenbush, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer with the Ho-Chunk Nation, says. And we've heard uh, comments from Bill before uh, the last couple times we've talked about these. Uh, There's a lot of uh, healing that takes place from this every time we talk about our history and add another layer, such as dugout canoes bring. It allows us to have another tool there to assure that we will still... Uh, we are still re- trying to retain our culture. For the last five years, Schroeder and Thompson have been contacting tribal nations and institutions from the Smithsonian Institution to local museums and asking after known and suspected dugouts documented in newspapers, recorded at the Wisconsin Historical Society, or just mentioned in discussion. So they've been doing this for for a, a number of years now, trying to find and track down all the the fact that they got six or more than 60 now. Yeah, that's incredible. It's pretty good. At first, researchers thought that just a handful of these boats originated from Wisconsin uh, remained. A deeper investigation revealed more in collections than, and even a number still resting on muddy lake bottoms where tribes sometimes stored them for the winter so they wouldn't dry out and crack. What started as 11 documented canoes has grown to 80. 
Wisconsin now boasts the second largest number of reported dugouts in the eastern party, uh, part of the country after Florida. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. And just to think, because, like, Tamara found that one dugout yeah. while she was scuba diving mm-hmm. on a day off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all led to this whole massive yeah. project. Just goes to show. Uh, these objects have survived for thousands of years, said Schroeder, when she added, helps the pe- uh, public appreciate how long indigenous peoples have existed in this area. Not only that, but the virtual library she and Thompson are amassing from the work on these canoes could help others understand more about how the vessels were made, the environment at the time, and how people navigated the region's lakes, rivers, and streams. The environment at the time is always a cool thing because you don't know, right? Uh, I know there's lakes in, in Algonquin that, uh, what's the big deep one right, I can never remember the name of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, Eustache but or they, something? No, no, but they put, it, it's on the Highway 60, but they put a drill down mm-hmm. and they pulled up a core sample from way, 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 yeah. way, way, way mm-hmm. down. And they could go back like hundreds of years and yeah, find, yeah. yeah, there was a forest fire mm-hmm. and there, there's something else happened and something else happened and something else happened just from these core samples they brought up. And even with, uh, like, I, I've I've seen a few things where, they, you know, the, the tree rings, you can see certain things have happened. Yeah. And so there's comparables when you compare wood that have been found that are were growing at the time of, for example, when Krakatoa exploded, uh, the volcano. And so there was, like, this summer-winter happening over in England and so on. It was a really cold year, crops failure. And so they could find trees from that era. And they can see that all the, like across North America and everywhere around the world, they saw, hey, well, there's a slow grow year. They all match up. So it's, it's, it's fascinating the science that you can pull out of tree rings. Yeah. It's, it's, so you got to think that they're going to be able to see stuff. Yeah. They even, they can even uh, see evidence of like solar flares, ancient Mm -hmm. solar flares and stuff in the tree rings. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Schroeder says there are some interesting aspects of traditional technology that are being revealed by the study and I think nobody anticipated. Indigenous peoples used dugouts for millennia to travel, fish and carry cargo. Just look at the surface of a, uh, the surface of a water map on the state of Wisconsin. Uh, said Ray Reeser, archaeologist emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point and anthropology curator at the University's Museum. That was the highway system. That's how things were typically moved. As one Menominee elder once explained to him, dugout canoes were the pickup trucks and birch bark canoes were more like fast little cars. They were used for different things. Dugouts were really meant to be utilitarian. Well, it is funny how this is opening up so many doors and they're discovering more and more of these canoes. Now, if they find old ruins uh, of old villages and stuff, you look in local bodies of water near that village and you're probably going to start finding more of these canoes. Yep. People would uh, allow trees to grow tall so they could use the entire trunk, fell in the trees when they were big enough to provide a wide and long enough dugout. Once down, builders would often burn and then extinguish small fires on the log, carving out the ash with stone tools. For the Wisconsin Dugout Canoe Survey Project, the sample Schroeder and Thompson take from the canoes could reveal where and from what trees these dugouts came from, offering hints as to how far the canoes traveled, what trees were available. 
Difference in size, shape, and wear patterns could indicate how people use the canoes, such as whether they help people transport goods or collect rice, a practical t- uh, practice typical of some northern tribes. Schroeder and Thompson sent wood samples to labs for various tests. Some use uh, radiocarbon dated, a method used to determine the age of a tree. Others go to USDA's Forest Products Laboratory in Madison, where a specialist uses longitudinal and cross-section cuts of the wood to make slides, mount them, and match them to the cellular structure of other wood types. Oh, that's how you tell what kind of tree it is. Yeah. So, and yeah, so like if if they find the kind of tree that grows only in northern Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. then they know that's where it's probably come from. Another lab will test samples for chemical signatures called strontium isotopes which may indicate where the tree originally grew. Part of southwestern Wisconsin, for example, is known for the driftless area, or as the driftless area, a section characterized by topography and soil chemistry absent of the till typically left by receding glaciers, which is apparent in different strontium concentrations in the soil. Trees take strontium up in their tissue, resulting in ratios in the wood that may help Schroeder and Thompson figure out where people likely cut the tree uh, they then carved into a canoe. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Right? By doing the strontium isotope analysis, we might be able to confirm that it came from the northern part of the state, Schroeder says. That would help us either add something to its uh, provenance or give us clues on where to look for the provenance of that object. Hmm. Didn't realize this was going to be a big old science, science. chemistry thing, did you? <laughs> no, I had no idea. <laughs> you just thought we were going to but, talk about a canoe. But I think, like my comments earlier indicated, though, that th- there is a lot of science involved. Oh, there's huge in this stuff. science involved. I mean, when we originally were talking about these, they were talking about bringing them up from the bottom, and they had to put them in a big glass, you know, plastic they had to keep it wet. Yeah, aquarium sort of thing. Mm-hmm. To make sure that it stayed wet, you know, because they dry out and then crack and, you know, uh, they don't want that, right? All of the information could paint a fuller picture of the past. Changes in that data over time could indicate how people moved or how the environment changed, which could have affected the trees available or preferred for dugouts. A dugout's history is often lost to time, especially if it is in a private or museum collection away from the environment it was created in, said Thompson. We were looking for its, uh, what we're looking for is any clues that we can get. Scientists and archaeologists once thought that most of the boats would be made from white pine, for example, a buoyant tree found in forests in the northern part of the state for millennia, but Schroeder and Thompson identification so far show that white uh, while about two-thirds of the dugouts found are indeed made of white pine the rest come from a wide variety of hardwood species like elm hickory and white oak yeah i guess anything with a big trunk mm-hmm. but a- an oak tree or something heavy portage hey portage and grandpa's <laughs> canoe no way um now, this may be due to any environmental conditions at the time. Pollen records from Wisconsin lake beds 
so again, the, the lake beds I was talking about, mm-hmm. suggest that climate was warmer and drier around 3,000 to 6,000 years ago when many of the dugouts from the southern part of the state were made from elm, according to Schroeder and Thompson's findings so far. Under those conditions, fewer oaks grew in, in, in a closed canopy forest. More oak savannas existed uh, where the tree branches uh, were closer to the uh, ground. Elms, on the other hand, grew tall and straight into a vase-like shape, ideal for a dugout. Evidence may show that dugouts built later may come from oak, which could show another change in the landscape. Indigenous peoples may have conducted fewer burns as their population shrank. Yeah, I guess they did... You know how they do controlled burns? Mm-hmm. I guess they did it as well. The indigenous people oh, yeah? did it as well, yeah. Uh, after their population shrank after Europeans introduced diseases, those who remained may have switched to relying on oaks grown in a closed canopy where the trees branched higher, telling a story of changing landscape and the people who inhabited it. Uh, there's a lot. It, that's There's a lot of information <laughs> that they're telling from boats found yeah. at the bottom of a lake. Yeah, I know, right? Like it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Uh, More recent dugouts, likely made by the Menominee in the mid-1800s, were also constructed from tree species like hemlock and hickory, which could have replaced pines that were largely logged out of the area by then. An indication of what was available based on how Europeans harvested the area's natural resources. According to Schroeder, indigenous people's ecological knowledge makes it possible to continue to build traditional material uh, culture even when the most abundant types of trees that had been there for millennia are no longer present. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, if they're using white pine mm-hmm. for all those years and then all of a sudden they're all logged, yeah. they gotta, they still need their boats. Yeah, so they're going to so go to more hardwoods. Yeah, they got to adapt, right? Schroeder and Thompson can't piece together information about the dugouts they find and uncover more of them without the help of tribal preservation officers. They regularly contact David uh, Grignon, the tribal historical preservation officer for the Menominee Indian tribe of Wisconsin, when they find what they think uh, is a canoe made by the tribe. Grignon says that models the pair make are really good and they do a lot of work on them, he said. Earlier this year, as Schroeder and Thompson took, uh, uh, took a look at canoes on the Menominee Reservation, Grignon told them about a dugout at the Smithsonian Institute, so they traveled to one of the museum's storage facilities in Suitland, Maryland, to see uh, the boat for themselves. When museum collections managers brought it down from the shelving unit and removed the muslin cover, Schroeder and Thompson saw a dugout sent to the institution in the 1890s, which once hung with a dozen of other vessels in the museum's boat hall. So they, hmm. yeah, they, they sit there for a yeah. hundred and some odd years, 130 <laughs> years in yeah storage. Yeah, just in storage. Right? So how many other things, that's what they're saying, what, is what, else, is, what else is out are there? out there that we yeah. don't know is there? Uh, back in Wisconsin, they regularly coordinate with Quackenbush on Lake Mendota in Madison. Quackenbush is using ground-penetrating radar to investigate the whereabouts of more dugouts. Uh, we talked about this where in the winter they went out on the ice with it and were walking over where they suspected. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And it was yeah. going down through the ice yeah. and into the into the bottom. 
He currently uses technology to identify unmarked graves at ancient burial grounds and hopes to take the same approach to see how many canoes lay on the lake bed where a 3,000-year-old canoe was brought to the surface last year, the oldest ever to be found in the Great Lakes at the time. He also uses LIDAR, a method of creating three-dimensional measurements of the Earth's surface using pulses of light from lasers and underwater photography to search for dugouts below the water. And that's what I believe they were using on top of the ice. Last year, he and others from Ho-Chunk Nation finished making a dugout canoe from a cottonwood tree. They took the canoe on its maiden voyage around the lakes and rivers in the area over a week, introducing tribal youth and others to the traditional uh, cultural tradition and experience as they paddled along. It says, we're going to continue to expand our knowledge with dugout canoes. We're going to continue to use it to teach our youth and children some of our cultural components that we used to be able to enjoy as a people in this area. Students at the high school on Menominee Reservation, northwest, uh, sorry, northeast Wisconsin, also plan to make a dugout this uh, this year. Building one, Grignon says, is a lost art that needs to be revitalized and brought back. As tribes work on restoring the cultural tradition of making dugouts, finding others in lakes may help tribal historic preservation officers and anthropologists accomplish another ambitious goal identifying larger areas that deserve protection where the dugouts can be left where they were found. Instead of pulling out single dugouts, which can dry out quickly and disintegrate if they are brought up from the lake bottom after centuries of being underwater. So basically leave them there and maybe we'll study them in a thousand years from now when we want to look at them. But why pull them all up now? Oh, yeah. Or, you know, or just like they say, if they found using the LIDAR found a village. Yeah, yeah. You know, on yeah. the lake shore, um, they could put a little, hey, here's what we think the village would look like. If you look at the yes. water in front of you, yeah. this is what it would have looked like. And just know you, you don't go in that area sort of thing. Lake Mendota, for example, more than one dugout canoe exists on the lake bed, prompting archaeologists to reconsider how to deal with the boats, perhaps by leaving them in their watery resting places. Lawmakers could create an archaeological district, says Reeser, Lake managers could then ask boaters not to disturb the lake bottom by dragging their anchors, for instance, much like similar state and federal laws protecting big shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what you got to do. You got to protect it. If you can't bring it up because it'll be destroyed, you got to leave it there and protect it as best you can. In August, Schroeder and Thompson traveled to uh, Windigo Lake, tracking down a possible dugout flagged by the Wisconsin Historical Society. From a motorboat, they scanned the water with sonar to uh, look for anomalies roughly 15 feet long. Seeing one, they dropped marker boys. Thompson donned her scuba gear and went in. There, sitting on the bottom, was a dugout. I don't know how many dugouts she's now found in that (laughs) scuba gear. (laughs) This is her lucky scuba gear. Yeah. Though the pair couldn't catalog the canoe the same way they could with those on land, Thompson took pictures and marked its precise location. She also took a small sample that will fill in details about yet another dugout, part of the growing digital collection. Amazing. This is amazing work they're doing. The Mm -hmm. the stuff they are finding just from dugout canoes they found at the bottom of the lake. Yeah, and it's just in the last couple of years. It's just like this watershed moment. 
Yeah. Just all of a sudden they're finding all this information about the history, about the people, about the land, about the trees, yeah. the ecology, everything. It's it's astonishing. You know, this has been one of the things I've been, uh, one of the stories that we came across. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. Somebody scuba diving on their day off and find a 3,000-year-old canoe, <laughs> you know, dugout canoe. Yeah. But just everything that's come of it is yeah. just fascinating. Every time you turn around, there's something new coming out of this. Amazing. And yeah, being able to take little bits of it and, you know, radio date, carbon Analyze dated, it, carbon dated. Yeah. yeah, it's it's neat. So huh. hopefully there's a lot more to come. Well, it seems like there is. It's just, we're just at the tip of it right now. Yeah, we just got to keep, but yeah, they're over 80 now. Yeah. 80 boats. Hmm. And now they know what to look for on, on, on lake bottoms. Right. So they're easier to find, which unfortunately, like it, maybe leave them there, like they said, leave them there until they're ready for them. And, but the problem is, is that you're going to have collectors suddenly, these private collectors going to start disturbing them, right? Hopefully not, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, something like that, I don't know, because if they know they bring it up from the bottom, it's going to destroy, mm-hmm. you know, dry out and crack and crumble, yeah. then what's the use? Well, somebody might want a piece of something for the Take a rafters chunk. of their cottage. Yeah. Hopefully not. Uh, do you know what raclette is? Uh, no. Sounds like a candy or something. It's a Swiss dish. Also popular in other Alpine countries. Based on heating cheese and scraping off the melted part, then typically served with boiled potatoes. Uh, I've seen something similar where somebody takes like a, like a, not a mozzarella, but a... Brie? Camembert? No, like um, uh, typically with with pastas, you have... uh, Parmesan? Parmesan, like a Parmesan wheel. And they heat it with a torch, melt it a bit, throw in the pasta right into that caved out bowl part, and and there you go. Really? Yeah. I can't say I've ever seen that. Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. Ah. Looks very yummy. really cheesy. Mm-hmm. It would be. Hmm. The cheese is the only sauce. Hmm. Cheese sauce. <laughs> Anyways, what Anywho, were you going to say? The Swiss have always been uniquely enthusiastic about their cheese. Last summer... Gestad began installing giant wooden fondue pots on the mountainsides, which guests could cluster together and enjoy cheese feasts created with special portable fondue kits. Hmm. So you hike up a mountain and you have a bit of a cheese fondue. Because <laughs> as one because does. Because why not? Right, because why not? This month... Adventure operator Outdoor Switzerland is launching its own cheese-themed innovation, the Floating Raclette Party. (laughs) Several times a week during the winter season, up to eight people will board an inflatable raft on the shores of Lake Briens, then float out onto the lake and down the river air to Interlaken as darkness falls and the lights come on. A guide will do the paddling while blanket-wrapped guests enjoy a raclette feast. Large quantities of melted cheese, boiled potatoes, and pickles accompanied by white wine. (laughs) Sounds very redneck. (laughs) Doesn't it? (laughs) But it's in the mountains, so So it's classy. It's classy. (laughs) It's classy. So I saw a picture. Now, you know the big rafts that they use for river rafting down the Grand Canyon? Stuff like that. Picture that. 
with a <laughs> dining room table. Yes. Like a big dining room table, the, the yeah. entire length of it. And melted cheese. And the and- people sitting on the sides of the raft yeah. facing the table. So the raft side is the chair and eating and, dinner. And it's winter time. It's, eh. <laughs> I guess it is melted cheese. Hey, but, the hot cheese will warm you up. The two-hour trips run until April 30th. Two hours of eating cheese. <laughs> Melty cheese. <laughs> Cost from uh, Swiss francs, 87 Swiss francs <laughs> or 78 pounds per person. <laughs> like That's like 100 bucks Canadian So let's go to Switzerland. <laughs> we'll get in a raft and we'll eat melty cheese, potatoes, <laughs> and pickles and guzzle white wine. This this paddling, drinking, eating thing yeah, yeah. is just getting taken to another, a new level every time we turn around. It's redneck, but classy. It's classy, but European redneck. That's all I say. But if you were there and someone said, dude, let's go. I'll pay for you. Let's go. Of course I'll go. Of course you'll go. <laughs> Sounds good. Questionable. Sounds good, though. Um, A big warning here. And this is, we've talked about uh, invasive species and stuff. Stay away from the Snake River is the warning multiple agencies are shouting from the rooftops. Unfortunately, many aren't heeding the warnings, Idaho Department of Fish and Game spokesman Terry Thompson says. Oh, that answers my question. I was going to ask, where's the Snake River? But if it's the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. (laughs) West Virginia. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) With the recent discovery of the tiny quagga mussel larvae in the Snake River at Centennial Waterfront Park, Many boaters, kayakers, and anglers are looking for other locations to recreate. Hmm. Number of cars trying to get into Shoshone Falls is staggering, Thompson says. Idaho Department of Agriculture, which has taken the lead in battling the invasive species, has closed the river from Idaho Power Company's hydroelectric plant several miles below the Hanson Bridge, downstream to Niagara Springs State Park, south of Wendell. How do you battle quagga mussels? Hopefully they die. I honestly couldn't tell you. Hmm. I mean, look at the zebra mussels. Yeah. Those got in the Great Lakes and... I know, yeah, like most power plants, they use chlorine. Uh, they inject chlorine into the cooling waters to kill all... They call them villagers, villagers, the little tiny baby mussels, that the spores. Yeah. So... I guess that maybe they use a chlorination method or something. Uh, I, the stay-out order includes all water-related activities, including fishing, wading, using float, floating duck decoys, etc. Any waterborne conveyance, whether it's a boat, a kayak, stand-up paddleboard, or float tube, poses a risk of spreading yeah. these muscles. And see, that's the big thing. It's not the fact that you're in there doing stuff. But when you take your boat and go somewhere, somewhere else. else, you got these little larvae stuck into the side of your boat yeah. and then you go to another place and yeah. then thanks for the lift. Yeah. Transferring bilge water from one lake to another and that's how it goes. Boom. Fish and game department has taken a step further by closing the river to fishing, hunting and trapping all the way to Idaho uh, Highway 46 at Clear Lakes near Buell, Thompson says. 
Other bodies of water are closed as a precaution, including Murtaugh Lake, uh, Dirks Lake, Wilson Lake, Oakley Reservoir, Box Canyon, Salmon Falls, Creek Reservoir, and Lake Walcott on the Snake River in Minidoka County. That's a lot of water bodies yeah, that are yeah, closing. Yeah. yeah. If the muscle spreads unchecked in Idaho, it could cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars in actual and indirect costs, says Braden Jensen, Director of Governmental Affairs for Idaho Farm Bureau Federation. Hmm. If they become established here, they will have an extreme cost to deal with, uh, he says in a statement. I I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do our part to be really conscious of what we're putting into the water and where our watercraft and other possible conveyances have been before. I would really encourage people to take heed in the state's campaign, clean, drain, and dry these things that go into the river every single time. And we've seen that before. I mean, we've, we're seeing that now where if you're heading out west, yeah. your boat oh. has to be out of the water. Three weeks? Three weeks or something days? like that? Yeah. Before you're allowed to float it in BC yeah. or Alberta or something like that, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, if you want to stop and paddle all the way across Canada like we did a few years ago, they don't allow it now. Yeah. Like you can't. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. Yeah. When, when like, for, for example, on, like, the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario, zebra mussels, they clog up all the intakes and, and the mm-hmm. cooling systems. Oh, even notice them in the locks. Like, yeah, when yeah. you're going through the locks, yeah. like, the walls are coated. Oh, it's incredible, yeah. yeah. Uh, Thompson agrees, we need to keep the message in front of people. Even dogs <laughs> should stay out of the river. Yeah. How long do the, the larvae last out of water? I don't know, but they say 21 days when you're dried 21 days before you go across Canada or something. Mm-hmm. But that's dried. But you figure, like, yeah, I mean, if your dog goes into that one lake. Yeah, the little uh, spores are going to be on yeah. them. Yeah. And then, oh, I mean, I guess immediately if you go into another lake or a couple yeah. of days later or something, maybe they might still yeah. be on them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I always tend to go to the same spots. Yeah. I guess unless you're, well, on a canoe trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but hopefully... Oh, something uh, to be aware of. Yeah, hopefully they, they stop this and are able to get a hold of it before yeah. it really catches on. Huh. Um, this next one. You, just when you think you, you know it all. <laughs> and this was another... I don't even know... Because I went back to find the original link where I found this and I couldn't even find that original link. Oh, I have no idea how I got here. (laughs) When I Googled it, I found stories from 2018, 2019. Yeah. Belly yacking. What is it? You may ask, because I certainly did. I had no idea. At first, I thought it said belly aching, yeah. but it was spelt wrong. Yeah. I think it's somebody's got a bit of a spelling issue. But well, no. you texted me the one word, and I'm like, what? Belly aching. What is he on about? Right? <laughs> think kayaking and surfing with the rider laying belly down on the board using webbed gloves to propel themselves along the water. And if you see pictures of it, it's like a, it's like a hybrid surfboard sit-on-top kayak. 
Yeah, I mean, I just said, remember those blue flutter boards you use as a kid when you're first yeah, yeah, learning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picture that, but bigger, longer, wider, thicker, made of plastic. Yeah, yeah, like a roto molded, just like one of those sitting on top kayaks. But it, it reminds me of a plastic snow sled. Oh yeah, yeah, that because it's got the curve yeah. to it and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. <laughs> Designed with a planing hull, much like a kayak, belly yaks glide through the water while holding the rider securely providing a responsive ride with excellent maneuverability. Belly yaks are approximately eight feet long, two feet wide, with a stable and secure riding area. Weighing less than 30 pounds, a belly yak is easy to transport to your favorite beach, river, or <laughs> lake. So you're just paddling like a like a surfer. So remember the, 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 the snow sleds where you can oh, run and oh, sort of yeah. dive and then you're heading... Face yep. first down yeah, the yes. hill. Yeah, that's exactly what these yeah, are. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, not the wooden toboggan type. The, the the plastic ones. So we figure. Okay. Well, this must be something new, right? No, apparently <laughs> it's not it's, new. No, it it, came, it it the actual history started back in the early two thousand two thousand four, I think it was. But I mean, it was. It's been within the last ten years. Yeah. That it sort of picked up. Uh, early 2000s, a hurricane came through South Carolina. Small creek directly in front of the cabin where Adam Masters lived filled t- to its banks. A small class 2 creek with low-hanging rhododendron on the bank. With the added high water, it created a tunnel down the middle. Sitting in a kayak wouldn't work, so Adam put the pray, uh, spray skirt on his boat, duct taped the opening closed... <laughs> Laid down face first and body boated, boating was born. <laughs> Lifelong kayaker Adam knew this was the answer he was seeking for increasing the thrill of his local rivers without increasing the risk. Is that something? Just like that. Just like that. <clears throat> uh, the experience was exhilarating. The first Beliac was made from a cut up kayak. 18 cans of expandable spray foam, <laughs> six rolls of duct tape, some plastic sheeting, weighed 80 pounds, 80 pounds. quickly filled up with water, but immediately proved the concept with sound. Built off of a Perception 30, the first Beliac had many of the key features needed for proper prone kayaking. Fascinating. 2010, he came up with his idea for rapid prototyping by casting the inside of kayaks with expandable foam to create a plug he could shape fiberglass and paddle. He did this for two years in an old meat freezer in (laughs) Greenville, South Carolina, working a few days a week and paddling his designs on the weekends. Finally, in 2012, Adam founded Bellyac Incorporated in Asheville, North Carolina, along with Evan Solita. So, I mean, right there, that's eight years from his first idea, right? (laughs) Adam digitized the best features of 24 different designs to create three models. The frequency, the Play 35, and the Play 45. Each boat was cut on a CNC machine and shaped by hand. Three aluminum molds were made for from the models for the rotational molding process enabled production to begin. 
By 2013, Belyak had distribution deals across the U.S. and in Europe, Canada, and New Zealand. The company introduced adaptive paddling in 2014, and the following year, the American Canoe Association adopted prone kayaking as a sport within the paddle sports curriculum. I still say I had never heard of it till... It's been 10 years. Yeah. Made for surfing down rivers, catching small and large waves, or paddling flat water on a lake. In waves, you can ride the wave belly down or hop up and surf the wave standing. There you go. Great for gentlemen, junkies, or families at the beach. Or families of adrenaline junkies. (laughs) It all works. Uh, they talk about three different places that you can, so the river, learning to paddle white water can be extremely frustrating experience. Many people never try paddling on moving water because the fear of flipping over. Experienced paddlers often have to chase harder and harder rivers to get the same thrill, increasing their risk. Belliac allows you to experience the thrill of white water much more quickly. There is no cockpit to get stuck in, which is the big fear of a lot of people. When it comes to kayaks. Uh, yeah, yeah, You roll yeah. over something, you're stuck mm-hmm. in there, right? Uh, and the Belliac roll remount is very easy to learn. For experienced paddlers, paddling prone and using only your hands for propulsion provides a completely new perspective and challenge on easy rivers, increased reward, decreased risk. That's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You, you trying to decrease the risk, but... Still want to have that enjoyment, right? Yeah. Chal- a bit more challenging, but, you know. On the lake, the majority of paddler uh, paddle craft are heavy, bulky, and hard to move. If you aren't planning an expedition, you just want to get out on the water, get some exercise with your friends, Belliac makes this possible. Lightweight, easy to transport to and from the water. Minimal gear required means you will have more time for being with the people you love, doing the things you enjoy. <laughs> or are your beer buddies, whatever. Yeah. Surf. The Belliac is a great boat for the beach since it uses the same muscles for paddling out as a surfboard, as you said earlier. Yeah. It's a great way to stay in shape for surfing. It's also incredibly fun to ride the wave straight in. Small surf equals big fun for the whole family. So, yeah, you can... I mean, our, we got our kids these big... Flutter, I can't remember what they're called. Boogie boards or something. I don't yes. know. They're, they're a really thick uh, styrofoam mm-hmm. type thing. And you'd boogie out, you paddle out, and then you'd ride the waves back in. Exactly, yeah. I mean, not massive Belly boarding. Or, or, yeah. yeah. You can do it with this. Hmm. But bigger waves. <laughs> so you got the boat, but the, the gloves. So, yeah, because your hands are your paddles. You look at some of the gloves and you think of a giant catcher's mitt. Or like but a soccer, webbed. like a... Yeah, like a soccer glove, yeah. but webbed, mm-hmm. right? And you think, it well, it's got to be really rigid, but they're not. Because you got to be able to grab... You grab stuff, yeah, grab, grab stuff, the board right? or whatever. But it expands your hand to be like a paddle. So you... More contact More space. contact, yeah. you get more push against the water when you're paddling. More control over helping with direction, that sort of thing. Uh, the Belliac Flow Glove provides the best combination of power and flexibility of any webbed glove on the market. This glove is constructed with durable 3 millimeter 
uh, neoprene that offers warmth and protection for all types of water. Flexible plastic shims between the fingers offer rigidity, yet still allow for plenty of dexterity for carrying and remounting the bell yak. The Generation 2 gloves feature an enhanced opening that make uh, make them on and off much easier. Shark skin, neoprene, palm, super grippy, and incredible, uh, incredibly durable. Hmm. Another thing, another thing that I... <laughs> another thing you got to buy. Oh, jeez. Why did I even... Why didn't I just click off of this? So they have three boats, different boats that they talk about. Um, I so If you go to uh, Bellyak, B-E-L-L-Y-A-K.com, I, it's it's got to be belly ack, yeah. Not belly ack, belly ack, because you're laying on your belly. Uh, dot There's a whole lot of more information about the accessories and what to do, how to do it, stuff like that. But they talk about the three boats they they have. Uh, the first one is the Play Thirty Five. Uh, it was designed, modeled after classic freestyle kayaks. And what does this mean? It means the Play 35 is maneuverable, agile, and wide open to your interpretation. Designed primarily for white water, this boat is also incredibly fun in the surf and a lightweight alternative for prone paddle workouts on the lake. This is also our most, the most popular boat for kids and summer camps. Weighing less than 25 pounds makes this boat super easy to transport to your favorite spot. Uh, the pros great for all type of white water, especially surfing and playing in the river and great for smaller riders. It's seven feet, seven inches long, 24 inches wide, weighs 25 pounds, paddler weight, 65 to 190 pounds, costs about three, $730 US. Hmm. Okay. It's, it's, it's efficient. It's. I, 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 it's cheaper I, than a kayak. I need to look up some videos of these. I want to, I want to see this. I'm just thinking, like, how many times you going down a river? Do you, do you, do you take your nose of your canoe into a rock, or the nose of your kayak into a rock, or you try and divert around something and you hit a rock? And I'm thinking your head's pretty close to that rock now. Well, these. <laughs> I mean, when, when I'm thinking about the the rivers, I'm thinking about bigger waves. Yes, absolutely. Right? You're, yes. You're, you're out there yeah. playing in bigger waves, like like a little playboat mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, that's when I, when I see these and the pictures and videos I've seen, that's what it is. Next one is the play 45, the brig brother to the play 35. Uh, it's a high performance interface between rider and water that offers extra stability for bigger riders or those just looking for the most stable ride on any aquatic terrain. Extra size and volume makes it a great boat for running steeper and or bigger water. Extra volume also provides increased stability for first timers, making it the first choice for rental operations on moving water. The Play 45 is our most versatile design in that it will suit a wide range of sizes of paddlers. The pros are wide weight range and super super stable for all types of water. Yeah, so they'd be like a beginner or a touristy mm-hmm. type thing, rentals and yeah, uh, seven feet seven inches, twenty five inches wide. So it's only an inch wider, thirty pounds yep. again. Paddler weight one hundred and thirty to three hundred pounds. It's a big range. 
That's a huge range. That's a big a boy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, that's and seven hundred and thirty bucks U.S. Uh, same price. Yeah. As yeah, the other yeah, one. Yeah. So I mean, this is definitely you know a beginner one. Great for as they say, uh, rental operations. Yeah. Because you're yeah. covering so many different. Um, yeah, you need a range, a range of, of weights and exactly. stuff like weights. And like the 35 would be good for smaller people, teenagers and kids. so on. And, yeah. yeah. And then this one here is for the the bigger boys and it's interesting, yeah. We could fit on one of these ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> DS, are you strapped in? Did we get, did you cover no. that? No, oh, you don't, you you're don't just, get, you're no, just you're sitting on top. You're just, you're just sitting on top. You're laying down, on top. Belly on top. Yeah, you're just laying on top. There's a couple of handles that you can hang yeah. on to. And you're just laying there going face first. <laughs> into a rock. <laughs> down in, right into a wave, not knowing what's under there. And that's what they say is you get such a different look you're at the water. You're closer to the water level. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're like basically in the water yeah. at this point. Yeah. I mean, we always said in a canoe, you're way up here. In a kayak, you're that much closer. Yeah. Well, in a belly yak... You're, you're, you're next you're stop is submarine, baby. <laughs> Your next stop is a submarine. Uh, that brings us to the frequency. Maximum speed and glide for the whole family and overbuilt to give season after season of prone paddling awesomeness. Features include a drop-down flip-up skeg, which allows your effort to be directed in the direction you want to go. Durable construction allows you to explore rocky rivers, then throw it uh, in or on top of your car and take it to the ocean, wherever there is water. Versatility is perfect for people who love to work out but hate going to the gym. (laughs) Hello! (laughs) Frequency features integrated toe braces for better body-to-boat contact and a watertight hatch for your necessities. Uh, there's a lot of stuff they talk about. If you partner this with the such and such company's dry bag, and if this such and such storage, and this such and such, so they try to to sell you other things when you're actually going through the site, of course. Yep. Um, it's great for flat water and fitness paddling. Can handle white water up to class three. Huh? Do you want to go down a class three no. rapids no, phase no, no, first? No. no. I bet you do. I see a rock coming. That's <laughs> the last thing you see. Integrated skeg makes tracking easy, while flip-up design means it's easy to get out of the way for transport. Great for adaptive paddlers, rec therapy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, They, they there's a big thing on their site about um, adaptive paddling with mm-hmm. these things. Length is 8 feet 7 inches, which is a whole foot longer. Width is 24 inches. Again, 30 pounds. Yep. Uh, paddler weight, 90 to 220 pounds. 800 bucks. So this goes up 77 They're bucks. not that expensive. No. 800 bucks US? Yeah, not bad. Bellyak.com. B-E-L-L-Y-A-K.com. There's a lot more information there. Yeah, I need to find but, more information. Uh, yeah. I could... If you want to go out and play in the waves for the day, like a, a playboat. Yeah, in a different way to In do a it. different way. Yeah. You don't need a paddle, but you got to get those big, big gloves. Mm-hmm. Basically, your two arms and those gloves are the kayak paddle. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, if you want to go down there. My big thing is you're constantly getting the water in your face. You're, yeah, you're laying in the water. The, yeah. There's going to be water always on. Yeah. So bring a scuba mask. <laughs> <laughs> snorkel. Yeah. Yeah, bring goggles and a snorkel. <laughs> but I I never heard of this before. Apparently it's been going on for about 10 years. So What else do we not know about? Oh, there's plenty of things. <laughs> Let me tell you what we don't know about. I've got a list of things I don't know. Um, sticking with white water. Yep. Do you remember a while back we talked about they wanted to make that white water rafting facility in the middle of Dublin? Yes, they were going to. George's dog. They wanted to work with. So they, they had a whole kind of plan. They wanted to work with. Uh, uh, first responders and stuff for practicing rescues and and they wanted to create competitions they wanted tourists to, yeah, yeah everybody coming home locals you know but it was expensive it was 25 million i think uh there was a big 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 uproar backlash huge because people needed housing more than they needed a white water facility yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a local river which already has yeah, yeah, white yeah. water it was stuff. only like a couple kilometers away yeah so People went nuts. <laughs> well, it seems the plans for the whitewater rafting facility, which got canceled. It's come full circle. Could be back on track. Dublin City Council recently lodged plans seeking permission for provision of a water-based recreational facility at George's Dock and Custom House Key, which would incorporate the following. Provision for a whitewater rafting course, uh, utilizing the existing George George's Dock Basin, which is a protected structure including a central flat water training facility, including water polo amenities, whitewater slalom course, kayak raft conveyor, pumping station and water treatment plant, a mechanical control center and electrical substations, enhancement of existing public lighting and provision with low illumination level flood lighting for water-based activities, and Swift Water Rescue Center with floodable yes, urban street with mock enclosures forming a rescue village. Huh. Council are also seeking permission to demolish the former Dublin Docklands Development Authority office building at Custom House Key and build two new quayside buildings with a combined total floor area of 600 or 763.98 square meters, maximum height of 5.5 meters. East building incorporated land-based activities including changing room, reception, staffed amenity area, equipment storage. So it's full on plans. They're going to build something pretty big. Like mm-hmm. I remember seeing some of the mock-ups and designs of the previous. I wonder if they're um, how close they're going to match, or did they redesign it totally? Like they don't really say. Yeah, uh, West Building comprising replacement offices and conference room for the use of Dublin City Council Docklands office, ancillary uh, landscaped public office space between these proposed. Keyside buildings, including surface water attenuation area oh, yeah, yeah. and Keyside walkways. The site had previously been embarked for earmarked for a whitewater rafting facility. However, this decision was reversed following public backlash. Yes, yes. Uh, so they, yeah, they said we're going to do this, and then people went nuts. Say we need our housing and stuff. Yeah. You know, people need to eat before they need. And so they said, okay, we're not going to do it yeah. now. Other plans for the area included a public Lido, 
Like a Lido deck? <laughs> yeah, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. While the idea of water sports facility was also floated. So, say- yeah, that, that was a previous plan. It was going to be like a, a square pattern circular thing with with a uh, – it was like a, with an escalator type platform that would drag them to the top again. And Yeah. Uh, 2019 Dublin City Council voted in favor of the 22 million pound project. <sighs> Big bucks. But announced at the end of 2021 that it had decided to abandon the product, uh, project due to a lack of financial and public support. Yet so, now it might be back. It might be back, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So interesting, eh? Right? Not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it'd be interesting. It's quite the facility. It's a lot of money. Yeah. It's going to bring in tourism money. But it, like like you said, or like the reason they pulled the plug on it the last time was uh, there was a facility not far downstream, downriver, and like I don't know, they they were they kept talking about this, that, the other thing, the housing expense. Like housing was the big one. It was. I don't know why that was an issue. Because Did they people, want to build apartment buildings in that square or something? No, no. They needed to spend that money on housing, not a oh, whitewater yeah, park. Yeah, yeah. 22 million pounds. That's a lot of money. Putting that into housing. Yeah. People need the housing. They can't live at a whitewater. Well, some people probably could, but <laughs> they can live in a van down by the river. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So, that might be back on track. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I got one tiny small thing here left. Um, Sacramento Park Rangers warning. Okay. Those who want to raft or float down local rivers in Sacramento don't have to break the bank. A quick search on Target or Walmart's websites show inflatable rafts listed less than 40 bucks, (laughs) which could be cheaper than renting higher end equipment for a few hours. But judging from the recent summer season, local officials would warn against it. On the American River, the most most accidents we have would be water rescues that occur because people store bought rafts. Sacramento Park Ranger Mark Piazza says. Usually, those rafts aren't built as strong as the <laughs> rafting companies use. So, any type of tree or branch that's floating in the river hits it, and they get stuck in a current that takes them. On an island, those rafts pop easily. So, most water rescues occur because of that. Uh, he estimated that park rangers conducted water rescues stemming from popped rafts roughly once a weekend during the summer months. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of rescues. Mm-hmm. However, uh, rental companies charge roughly $145 to $280 a day for use. That's a lot yeah. of money. Mm-hmm. If you're going to use it once or twice, I'm going to spend the 40 bucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that's still $145 a day. Uh, depending on the size of the raft, high-end rafts aren't prone to popping, but can cost five to seven thousand dollars. I don't think Walmart sells those. <laughs> no. Walmart offers small inflatable rafts for as little as twenty-seven bucks. <laughs> Target sells rafts and kayaks ranging from forty to eight hundred and fifty, with some products on sale because the season is winding down. Basically, pool floaties. Yeah. Regardless of the rafts people use, park rangers emphasize the importance of wearing life jackets and avoid the use of alcohol in the water. Anecdotally, they say those are the biggest safety issues they encounter on Sacramento area rivers. Yeah. Wear your life jacket. Wear your life jacket. 
Right. Don't drink and float. No, they promote the rules uh, there and, you know, they want everybody to have a good time. But, you know, if they can point out, yeah, your your $27 Walmart special <laughs> is going to cost us a lot of time and maybe your life. And they do offer free life jackets on a loan. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we provide free life jackets for anybody who would like to use them. A lot of children, too. If you're 13 and under, you have to wear a life jacket. That's a requirement by Yeah. Law. So if you're going to Sacramento, <laughs> take a canoe or a kayak or a stand-up paddleboard. Well, or a $7,000 raft. But you see it around here, too, but it's mostly like a floating a tube down a lazy river type thing, right? Yeah. It's like a Saturday afternoon thing to do. Whatever happened to big old black inner tubes? Yes, I know. Yep. Where Transport you would truck burn when yeah. the sun came out. Yeah. And you kept getting jabbed by the valve in the back. <laughs> I remember doing that. We would float on a lake. Yeah. We didn't do rivers. But we we would, uh, like my uncle, he drove transport trucks. So he was he could go get a, he would bring us home some inner tubes from, from the tires. And, and you could overinflate those things. They're oh, big, we blew one up. Massive. We, we blew one up. Like you blew, <laughs> inflated it until it popped? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is getting pretty good. Yeah, just make sure it's really hard so we can. It's not going to dent or anything like that. And next thing you know, kaboom! <laughs> Yeesh. Well, that was shocking. That was. Yeah, that was the end of Whoa. our swim day. <laughs> so, let's go play at the sand dunes. <laughs> so apparently, we ain't floating down yeah. the river today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's all I got. Yeah, I don't have anything, Dad. I'm going to go back to my Lake Superior trip because <laughs> I'm not here. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, don't know what's happened as we're recording this, but yeah, so the Arctic Cowboys, ah, yes. while we're recording They've got to be close. I they're about 210 miles. To go? Left. So that's... Which I got to think, sometime during less this than a week, week. That's a week. They're, yeah. they're done. They're in Tuktaak They finished the depending on the passage. Depending on the weather, right? They've been having some cold, big winds, big oh. waves, yeah. rain. Yeah, it's doing everything. These they're scratching every mile out of this last bit. Yeah, they and they got a couple the, big expanses of water too. They and the pressures. Oh yeah, I know. Like a yeah. full exposure to the winds coming across top of Alaska and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, hopefully, I get back from this and uh, looking at the news and say they did it. I wish. I wish I could get up there and and watch them land. That'd be neat, wouldn't it? Yeah. You shall not land here. <laughs> well, you know, we're both on vacation. We can go up there and meet them on shore with a yeah. mega dram. Take the <laughs> mega dram of whiskey. We could take the motor home and, and head out west. See? <laughs> See? Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh Oh, and they're starting to get a little bit more bite on their uh, their GoFundMe. Yep. So that's starting to jump up and Good. There you go. Was it ArcticCowboys.com? Um, TheArcticCowboys.com. Yeah, TheArcticCowboys.com. Go check them out. You can follow them, see where they are. Yeah. Read their blog posts. And uh, yeah, woohoo. Can't wait. Mm, they're almost there. They're almost. Close. That last little it. Uh, you got anything else? I do not. You do not. I'm glad you brought up the Arctic Cowboys because I keep forgetting to watch them. But oh, man, they are so close. So close. You can almost taste it. Well, if you want to find out more about us, 
You can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can download or stream our episodes on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Player FM, or all your favorite podcast downloading sites. Or you can go to the episode page at paddlingadventuresradio.com and you can stream or download all our episodes there. All 399. Oh, no. This is our last episode ever. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with friends, family, and fellow paddlers. I want to thank everybody for listening this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Derek Specht. We'll see you next time.